Great to see you. You can have a seat. I'm Dan Seitz, senior pastor here at Hillside. It is just a joy to have you here. It's a joy if you are watching online. We welcome you here as well. Today we are moving ahead with our Lenten series called Timeline Lent, and we are looking into a tremendous psalm. And like Psalm 22, which Becky led us through with such skill last week, Psalm 107, again, which we're looking at today, is a psalm to treasure. It is a psalm that absolutely takes our breath away. And that's not too much to say. What's interesting to me about the psalm is that it itself screams out, don't miss me. In fact, you could say that in the last verse, it, it, it grabs us by the collar and it, it shakes us and it pleads with us not to miss, but rather to savor the picture of God that it paints. If you've got your Bibles with you, open up to Psalm 107 verse 43. You can also find the verse on your message notes, but listen to this final verse in the psalm. It reads this way, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Three comments about that final verse in the psalm. First, the these things in the first phrase refers to the subject of the psalm, which is God's chesed, to use the Hebrew term, or God's loving kindness, as it's often translated, though there really is no adequate English translation at all. But this psalm is all about God's chesed, maybe the most distinctive feature of the one true God's character. And then look again at the verse. The verb translated attend to, very interestingly, is usually the first Hebrew word that seminary students learn when they take Hebrew class. It's the word shamar, and it, it's usually translated to guard. And in the Old Testament, shamar is used to describe uh, the guarding of prisoners uh, or even the guarding of the Ark of the Covenant to give you a sense of its flavor. Well, the message of verse 43 really pops when we swap attend to for guard. And in that case, the verse reads this way, whoever is wise, let him guard these things. What we're gonna see in Psalm 107 is something to guard. In other words, the picture of Yahweh that Psalm 107 paints is something to protect, something to guard in our heart. And then finally, one more preliminary about this very last verse. Although it's hidden in most translations, the phrase steadfast love there in verse 43 is actually a plural verb. So although it's a bit awkward in English, the verse really should read, whoever is wise, let them consider the steadfast loves of the Lord. Isn't that wild? In other words, the one true God's chesed, his loving kindness has multiple dimensions. You could say it's a mansion with many spacious 
rooms. Well, what else do we need to know about Psalm 107 in general before we get going? Really interesting, if you know it. It's structured around four rescue stories, four moving stories of the one true God saving his people. And the section that we're zeroing in this morning, verses 17 through 22, contains the third of those four rescue stories. You can read the other ones this week. And now we're ready to plunge in. Let's read the passage. Psalm 107, 1 through 3, verses 17 through 22. We're going to savor this. We're going to ponder the picture of our God it paints. And then we're going to guard what we learn in our hearts. Let's read it. It goes this way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy." It's God's word for us. As we just heard, the psalm begins with a call to praise the Lord for his chesed, his loving kindness. And the tone is exuberant. The word in Hebrew translated praise can also mean to throw something or to cast it. So the command to throw out praises, uh, to use some language you might uh, know, the idea of like yeeting praises up to uh, our good God. If you don't know that word, you don't have a middle schooler in the home. Skipping down to verse 17, here's where the rescue story really begins. Listen to this. It says, some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. And again, considering the original language really makes the description more striking. The verse literally reads, fools from their ways of sin. And the Hebrew fools is the first word in the line. And it's blunt. And it's saying that the people whom God is just about to rescue in this rescue story story that we're looking at, they are knuckleheads. And in the Old Testament, the word fool is generally not someone who's ignorant, like me, of any math past the fourth grade, okay? Fool means something very specific. It means somebody who despises wisdom and instruction. Somebody who actually has some sense of God's truth, some sense of God's ways, but has just decided to trash it. So that's who we're dealing with in this story, people like that. Second phrase in verse 17 is equally stark. It's just two words in the Hebrew. Hebrew likes to jam words together, making them really big. And it says, and from their iniquities, they afflicted themselves. That's how it really reads. The verb here is reflexive. Well, what's this amount to? We do not have very sympathetic victims here, do we? 
But people in view are people who have caused their own misery. And in verse 18, the psalmist expands upon that misery, and it's, it's wrenching. Listen to the description. It says, they loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. And the foolish people in the psalm here, they're, they're, they're so heartsick. They are so hangdog. They're so forlorn that they're unable even to eat. And get that. Get that. All food, regardless of how delicious, which includes chicken piccata, <laughs> is abhorrent to them and utterly destitute, both sick and heart sick, they're creeping towards death. They're inching towards its iron gates. Let me ask you, has that ever been you? Some of you are nodding. You ever been so sad? Ever been so distraught? Ever been so crushed of heart that you couldn't even eat? That food became repulsive to you? You know, many years ago when I was a young adult, uh, a close friend of mine sank into that kind of verse 18 level of misery. And I knew that this person was experiencing turmoil, but when I saw him, I was shocked because he was 20 pounds lighter. And he told me that he had been so heartsick that he couldn't eat. Now, he looked great, <laughs> but that's not a weight loss program anyone would pick. And I remember at the time uh, thinking, I didn't even know that possibility existed, being too low down to eat, having a linebacker's appetite like I do, happy or sad. But it's true. There is such an appetite-erasing kind of sorrow, and it's the condition of the people in this psalm. Well, before we see what happens next, let's, let's really make sure that we understand the picture here. The people in this psalm, in this third rescue story, they've caused their own misery. They are not innocent victims. The pit they've fallen in, and pit is the literal translation of the word in verse 20. Your Bible probably says destruction. That pit is one they have dug for themselves. So what do they do? What do these sad sacks do? And here we learn that although they're fools, they're not complete fools. They still know enough to call out to the Lord in their trouble. And that's what they do according to verse 19. Well, what does the Lord do? How's the Lord respond to these people? Does his response match the response of any of the passers-by in this little humor piece that my brother sent me last week when he heard we were in Psalm 107. It goes like this. A man fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down in that pit. And he walked on. An objective person came along and said, it's logical that someone would fall into that pit. A realist said, now that's a pit. A Buddhist said, your pit is only a state of mind. A scientist calculated for him the volume of the pit. A geologist explained the rock strata in the pit. 
An evolutionist said, better to die in that pit so you won't produce any more pit-falling offspring. <laughs> A psychologist asked how he felt about being in the pit. A county inspector said, you got a permit to dig in that pit? A pessimist said things will get worse than being in the pit. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. What does the Lord say to these people who are stuck in the pit? What's the Lord do for those undeserving? Verse 20 again. Listen to this. Let it sink in. He set out his word and healed them delivered them from their destruction. I mean, let that sink in. God has not given us this picture of his chesed for no reason. I mean, think about this. Extracting no promises in return. Upon hearing their cry, the Lord rescues them. And what a picture. The one true God... The God who created everything, the God who made human beings for a purpose in love to be his friends, to be his reflectors, his joyful image-bearing icons, like we talked about in the Ambassador Youth Series, this God, when those very same people cry out to him after falling into their own pits, this God comes and he springs them. And he doesn't make them grovel before he does, not at all, despite their haughtiness. Despite abandoning their created calling to love God and to reflect him in the world as part of his family, despite abandoning all that, when they cry to him, he comes. This is who God is. This is who our God is. And last Sunday night, I was talking to Darren about this psalm. And we were experiencing this great wonder in it. And he said, you know, you, you ought to do a comparative God analysis. <laughs> you ought to consider how the original hearer would have responded to this picture of Yahweh. So let's do that. Let's imagine that we're a sixth century member of the nation of Israel. And we're in a worship service. And we hear Psalm 107. We hear about this pit-saving dimension of our God's character, we would be totally thunderstruck. We would fall out of our chairs. And that's because no other God remotely resembles Yahweh. Nobody's even like him. For instance, if someone's going to get something from Baal, the chief Canaanite God, there will be blood, to use the movie title. In fact, the person's own. In 2 Kings chapter 18, in their contest with Elijah, the prophets of Baal, what do they do? They slice themselves with swords and lances to try to get Baal to do something, to send fire. It's gruesome. And similarly, before being willing to lift a finger, Asherah requires degradation, human trafficking in our terms. And Molech, another god on offer, demands the steepest price of all, the sacrifice of children. How stark this picture of the one true God who demands nothing for his help, nothing for his mercy, nothing but the ask. And to circle back, the psalmist asks us to guard this picture, to get it to go in our heads, who this God really is in his manifold and shocking and eternal loving kindness. And he must tell us to guard this for a reason. He must want us to gain something. Well, what do we gain? Let me give you ideas first. 
I love this. We gain assurance. We gain assurance. The one true God, the one God who really exists is a get us out of the pit God. And we tum when we tumble into holes, he is willing. He's willing to heave us right out when we ask. And there's no reason to think that we only get one get out of the pit free card. After all, this is our God's essential character. And the one thing God can't do is deny himself. He can't be anything other than what he is. Now, will his rescue be according to his own timing? Absolutely. Will it accord with his wisdom? Absolutely. But it will come in some kind of form or fashion because that's who he is. He's a rescuing God by nature. He's a pit-saving God. Now, is this quality in him an excuse for recklessness? Of course not. We would not presume on God's rescuing grace. And if we're tempted to do that, if we're tempted to do that, we remember the gospel. We remember the big idea of the Ambassador U series. We remember that grace has a goal. It's part of a story. And we remember that all that God has done for us in the Son and all that he continues to do for us, including his ongoing rescue operations, what is it directed to? It's directed to our transformation, our sculpting into the image of King Jesus so that we can finally be the joyful, fruitful, image-bearing daughters and sons that he created us to be. So this dimension of God's character, his hesed, it's nothing to justify recklessness, but here's what it is, and I need this. It's a reason for a big sigh of relief because the scripture says we all stumble in many ways. <laughs> we need a God who will rescue us. What else do we gain by pondering this picture? Here's what I think. We gain compassion. And let's think it through. If our God is one who's chesed, leads him over and over again to pull even fools out of pits, we're going to have compassion for fools ourselves. And I don't know about you, but up on my high horse, which I ride around all over town regularly, <laughs> I am far more sympathetic to those I perceive to be innocent victims than those I perceive to have deserved their misery. I think, though, the psalm is calling me, at least, and maybe you as well, to a much more expansive kind of compassion, the kind of compassion that God himself has. Now, will part of that compassion, part of that rescuing Jesus-like work, will it involve the truth? Will it involve the truth about God? Will it involve the truth about our choices? Will it involve the truth about what is ultimately real? Will it involve the truth about God's restoring aim in the gospel? Of course it will. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul says that it's through speaking the truth in love, living in the real world the way it really is. That's how we are to grow up. And that's how we're to recover our created dignity. Nevertheless, in extending compassion to the hapless, we're not going to be quick to give up. And lastly, by pondering this picture of Psalm 107, we gain a third thing, and it's gratitude. And here's why. You know, every one of us who knows Jesus as king and 
friend and Lord and Savior, every single one of us was at one time down in the pit. We were pitiful, you could say, every single one of us. I couldn't resist. But think about it. Just like Adam and Eve, every single one of us, every single one of us, not one accepted, rejected God. Every single one. We rejected his iconic image-bearing purpose for us. And where did we end up? We ended up in a hole of justly earned condemnation. But what did this God do? What did he do? When we cried out, when we acknowledged our desperate need for him, what did he do? He swooped in. And he saved us. He forgave us. And he cleansed us. And he adopted us. And he filled us with his own Holy Spirit. And that spirit now enables every single one of us who know him to live joyful, Jesus-style lives with our brothers and sisters in the church everywhere. This is our story. The story of Psalm 107 is our story. We are the rescued ones. We're the fools pulled from the pit. And it was a rescue that required Jesus going down into the pit himself, the pit of an atoning death. And now knowing that joyful forgiveness, knowing that our slates are washed clean, that rescue, that second chance, and knowing that deep restorative purpose that lay behind it, we don't squander it. We lean into these lives that we were liberated to lead. Well, how did God do this for us? How did he do it for us? He did it in the same way that he did it for the fools in the poem. Listen to verse 20 again. It says, he sent out his word and healed us. He sent out his word and healed us. Any echoes? The Lord literally did that. And here's where this passage actually explodes with meaning if we suddenly begin to look at it, not historically, but through the Christ lens. You see, five centuries after Psalm 107 was written, God literally sent his word, didn't he? Whom the gospel of John identifies as his son, Jesus, and by living for us and dying for us and rising again and then being crowned king and pouring out his spirit and promising to return and then yoking us to him in baptism, he has healed us and now healed of our waywardness and our obstinance and our cussedness. And now with the word inscribed on in our hearts, what do we discover? We discover we're new creations and we discover that we're inclined to follow and we're inclined to serve and we're inclined to love even when it's hard and even though we do it all imperfectly. You know, we're going to take communion in a minute, and we're going to feast as the family of God. And as we do as brothers and sisters, because that's what we are. We are a family. We're going to remember our rescue. We're going to savor it. But before we get there, I want to tell you a final story. And this is one that popped into my head late in the game when I was praying about this message. You might remember that back in our Big Present Christmas series, I told you that when I was in sixth grade, my twin brother and I each got uh, an epic big present. Anyone remember what the presents were? Centurion Click Bicycles. That's right. And this gift opened up a new world 
to my brother and me. And this being the era before smartphones, before the Find Me app, our protective parents could not keep perfect tabs on us after they gave us our freedom machines, those bikes. And we were regularly off on big adventures together. Well, one hot Saturday morning, we head out for a ride. And living in North San Jose, we decide to ride to Central Park in Fremont, somewhere we had gotten a map. And we, we, we pack a lunch, uh, but no water. I think we each had a can of Fanta, if you remember <laughs> that drink. And anyway, uh, after getting to Fremont and feeling pretty good, I say to Darren, hey, let's ride to Sonol. <laughs> you know where this is going, I think. So we head up Warm Springs Road to uh, Sonol, get to Sonol. And at this point, we're feeling a little tired, a little washed out, maybe from entirely neglecting hydration, but who really knows? Once we get to Sonol, one of us says, you know, how about instead of backtracking on the flatlands like a couple of chumps, how about if we take the road from Sonol to Milpitas, Calaveras Road? We'll make it a loop. Well, bad idea. <laughs> really bad idea. If you know the region, you know that Calaveras Road between Sonol and Milpitas is very narrow. It's very windy, and most importantly, it's very, very steep. I mean, this is cycling way above our pay grades. Well, about halfway between Sonol and Milpitas, we feel like we are nearing the gates of death, like the psalm talks about. And we are hungry, and we are thirsty, and we're beyond exhausted. We are so miserable, I mean really miserable, that we are tempted to do a Thelma and Louise bicycle style and just launch ourselves right into the Calaveras Reservoir. Darren cried, okay? Of course, he will say it was me, but there were no witnesses, okay? <laughs> Finally, we make it back to our house in San Jose near collapse, if not organ failure, okay? Now to Matt McGinnis, Don Moeller, Jack LaSalle, 45 miles would not have been much of a challenge. But to a couple of gangly, late blooming, dehydrated seventh graders, it may as well have been the race across America, okay? <laughs> but here's the punchline. I will never forget what our dad said to us when we dragged our sorry selves through the front door. He simply said this, why didn't you call? I would have come and gotten you. Just no criticism, no finger wagging, no what were you thinking, 45 miles on a can of Fanta? Now, did our dad approve of this joyride that we went on and were unprepared for? Not at all. Did he think the decision was foolish? Absolutely. But would he have hesitated for a second to come and get us? 
or have begrudged it by doing so. Not at all. He would have come. And that's a picture of our God. That's a picture of the God of one, Psalm 107. That's a picture of the one true God that really exists, the Father of Jesus the King. He's the God represented by the Father in the parable of the prodigal son. This is who he is. He's the God who comes running when we cry for help. And he's a God who never despises a broken and contrite heart. He's a God who won't ignore a cry from the pit. And that means this. If we're in trouble, if we found ourselves in some sort of pit, Maybe one that we've dug ourselves through decisions that we now see as foolish, or, or maybe not. You know what we do? We cry out to him. We call out to him. And if we do, we let the church know. Because we the staff, and we the council, and we the prayer team, we're the pit crew. Let's never make the mistake Let's never make God, the God of eternal loving kindness, say to us what my dad said to us. Why didn't you call?